The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this first half hour is Don Ganguly, who is the CEO of Home Union. Welcome to the show, Don. Glad to be here, Jordan. So let's just start with, uh, before we talk about Home Union, your background and how you got to create Home Union uh, originally. Well, uh, you know, I'm a serial entrepreneur, and, you know, we had a company that uh, was doing a lot of work for mortgage bankers and servicers. Uh, during the, you know, we had a ringside seat. The company ended up getting sold to another company, to Oracle. But we were, uh, we're doing a lot of work in the early days of the feast when, uh, uh, you know, anything and everything was getting underwritten from an underwriting standpoint. And then when that all imploded, uh, we were helping a number of servicers um, through loss mitigation, restructuring loans, what have you. So it was sort of clear to us, as you know, this, this whole home ownership that had gone from about 62% to 69% put a lot of people in homes that, you know, were having a tough time being there. And that when they came out, uh, a lot of these folks wouldn't qualify but would want to stay in homes, would want to rent homes because, you know, the kid doesn't really know whether dad is renting or buying and, and they were used to, you know, the comfort of a home versus an apartment or something else. So we, we sort of saw a an early move into more of what I'd call a rentership society where, uh, you know, a lot more people had post what we call post-mortgage trauma. Uh, the whole employment situation drastically changed, which we can get into a little bit later, but... Um, so we, we, we saw, you know, a large inventory of homes and a lot of people wanting to rent. And so that got us to looking at the, you know, rental investment, single family rental investment market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we found that, you know, it's, it's, it's a very large market as it exists. I mean, take a number of 15 to 20 million. If you take one to four units uh, of uh, single family homes are actually held for investment. The the issue here is people when they buy and uh, and anybody that you and I know I mean you'll find that they own a rental house somewhere right or they they have a friend that owns a rental house. The the issue is most of these people are either buying where they live because uh, they they want a line of sight into the property and they don't know anything that's remote, or uh, they're buying in a place where they grew up or went to school, um, or you know they're buying a vacation home and so they go to their local realtor who says yeah I can I can get you a property. They buy something, they become a landlord, and that's not doesn't pan out to be the best investment decision. So, it was a market that was very fragmented, very local, and very large. So it was sort of ripe for disruption. Where we, you know, what we set out to do is said, what if we could connect investors? Uh, you know, the first problem was uh, to properties that had the best returns around the country, and they may not be where the investor lived. Uh, and we could give them enough tools and uh, and uh, so that they could look at that, get comfortable with the data and the tools and with the internet today it's, you know there's a lot of visualization that you can do 
and say, okay, you know, you live in California, but your best property might be in Chicago or Memphis or Indianapolis, which, which fits your preference, your budget, and the type of returns you're looking for. So we first solve for that problem. And then, you know, the second issue people have is, okay, I got this great property in Chicago, but how do I manage it? What happens when there's a vacancy? And so that's sort of the second thing we set out to solve, saying, look, we'll make this a fully managed experience where we stay on the hook for management. And that was sort of the genesis of Home Union. So we, we spent really a couple of years uh, actually going you know, into these cities, which our model said had good rent-to-price ratios, and then creating the management infrastructure, finding the neighborhoods that worked, and then bringing those into our platform uh, to the investors. So, so, so when did you actually launch Home Union? You know, Home Union's, uh, you know, a little over, uh, I would say, three years old. Uh, and, you know, the the platform itself where we put properties up has been up for, you know, a couple of years. Uh, and then, you know, a year ago, uh, or probably last fall, we sort of raised a, a Series A uh, funding into the company because we spent a year where we put these properties up in a limited number of zones and we found that, you know, people were buying and buying mm-hmm. multiple properties around the country. So so the model, you know, so the hypothesis was proven that people would buy these things sight unseen if they had the data and they got comfortable. Yeah. So once we had that, then we needed, you know, the funds to roll out, you know, more locations, more properties, more infrastructure, better data, better service, uh, all of the above. So that's what we did last fall. And then so we've been expanding, uh, you know, steadily the number of locations. Uh, so we'll be up to, you know, over 20 locations here in the next 30 days. So the, the uh, rental market the has really changed dramatically here because you have, I'm not sure I'd call you an institution, maybe I would, but uh, you've got BlackRock and all these big companies coming in, buying homes, in many cases distressed properties, fixing them up and then renting them. Right. right so you're right. kind of, or you and the investors that you're representing are kind of competing against these massive uh, you know, pension funds and hedge funds and all these big guys coming in with billions of dollars. How, how can you compete when they come in so, so strongly these days? You know, uh, I think at the end of the day, the first thing is it's a very big basket, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're talking of, you know, 20 million properties. You're talking of a million transactions a year. Uh, and all these guys add, add up to tens of thousands of transactions. So it's not like, you know, there's a scarcity here. Uh, and a lot of them are buying, and like you said, they've gone after distressed assets. They've gone after, uh, you know, places like California where they've held for appreciation because, you know, they felt if, if they buy low, they can hang on, and they've expanded into a few other markets. And and being a REIT, they have, uh, being REITs and, and private funds, you know, the REITs have some restrictions we are, you know, we're, we're taking that same experience and really bringing it to the everyday investor online. And, I mean, if you look at any anything that you bring online, you're essentially reducing uh, the friction and the cost in the transaction that, you know, the large funds or the REITs have in doing this. And there, there's enough out there that uh, I think it's, 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 you know, it's not even a situation where you're going to bump into each other given the size of the inventory. The other thing I think we should point out is, if you look at the you know cash on cash expected earnings in this market, I mean you're looking at anywhere from you know five six percent to eight nine percent if you um, if you just pay all cash for some of these uh, rental properties that are out there on our platform. Mm-hmm. Now the other big advantage a, a retail investor has is you know Fannie or Freddie. The government gives you up to ten loans, including your own house, to buy investment properties, right? Yeah. 
and and that money is pretty cheap. So if you and I wanted to buy stock today, you know, the government wouldn't give us you know a hundred thousand dollars to go buy stock. Yes. But they will give you that to buy rental properties, and what that does at current interest rates is juices those returns up by several basis points, right? Several hundred basis points. So you're the six to nine uh, returns that exist today uh, would actually go into double digits. Um, so, so let's go so, through the process of how people would do this. The first thing they would come to Home Union, do they have to join Home Union as a member or something, or they just go on yeah, they, the they, website? Yeah, they have to register. Uh, registration is free. If you check out our site, I mean, it's, you know, we, we very much act like an investment management site as opposed to a real estate listing site, you know, mm-hmm. that's how we've changed it. So if you think of us, we are a national real estate investment management company for, for the everyday investor. Uh, so we're 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 sort of promoting a, a whole new alternate asset class that was local and fragmented. So when they come to our site to answer your questions, they you know they they see some sample portfolios from multiple regions and and that gives them different types of return when they leverage. We have algorithms now that we can assign risk uh, levels to properties and neighborhoods based on you know a bunch of different factors. So we have ABC risk classification. So. Uh-huh. So and then does the investor have to be qualified in some way? Do you have to see their credit report, or how do you know what kind of investor you're dealing with well, once well, they register? Not, not at that point, right? I mean, you, we don't want to close the gate at that point. So when people come in, they, they, they have a clear idea of, okay, if I pay cash, I need this much. If I, if I can qualify for a loan, I need this much. So mm-hmm. when they play with all of that, then they say, okay, it seems interesting. Then they register. Once they register... You know, they get their own little portal. And, you know, the thing here is we try to automate as much of this as possible. I'd encourage you to go, you know, just play around with it if you want to register. But it's a whole different experience. So once they register, they they see some sample portfolios. They're able to change their preferences. You know, I I want to, you know, just like you'd with a stock, right? I'm going to change my down payment. I want to change, um, you know, the risk classification. I want to see different locations and so on and so forth. So Mm -hmm. once they do that, then we engage, you know, customer service, real estate specialists with them to say, look, uh, you're looking at these regions. Here are some of the assets available, and then um, you know they have their own wish list. So in an automated way, you know properties get uploaded to their wish list. Then they say, okay, you know that looks interesting. I might want to buy, you know, a property in San Antonio, and I want to buy. I might want to buy one in Indianapolis, and mm-hmm. you know, and that's a total of fifty grand down for me. I want to go for this. So at that is the point then. That if they're not going to do cash, uh, we get we walk them through a prequal, right? So before we, now you're in the standard home buying process, right? So when, once they have the prequal, then uh, you know we we what we have is we actually have investment location managers who are company employees in all these cities, right? And these folks work with the investors to close whatever transaction needs to be closed in that particular city from an investment standpoint. So if you're familiar with Redfin, which is you know, yeah. a model that's company-owned realtors for buying houses, I mean, we're, we're a very similar model, which is you know, company-employed uh, realtors or investment location managers, what we call them, for investing in houses. So these folks are solely dedicated to us. They're working neighborhoods, which we think are good rent price ratios and have other good fundamentals. And they now work with the investor to go through uh, and complete that transaction. The difference being we, we automate a lot of you know that transaction as well as the visibility. So uh, investor has a, in his portal sort of a transaction process workflow which shows him or her 
you know, what they need to do for the next step, what's missing, what docs they need to send in, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And after they do all that and they close, we actually give them a personal vault where they store all their real estate documents. Because a lot of times they'll they'll want to buy more properties, and then all those documents are already there. What they would need is, you know, more current. So it's all there electronically but, online, you're saying? Yeah. And, you all know, all the documents, really, yes. Yeah, but real estate, uh, given our regulations, you know, there are certain aspects of it which cannot be online, which you need wet signatures, especially for a loan, right? I mean, you can't. I mean, even today, you can't do most of a loan online. Yeah. So a lot of those things uh, are, uh, you know, we'll do offline. But as much of this as we can automate online with the trail back and forth, and not just by email, but just in a portal that they actually have mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. access to. And so that's how we're trying to sort of make this more like a, you know, a stock market type transaction where they come in, they select, they transact. And then after they transact, uh, they sign you know, asset management agreements with us, and, and they start receiving, you know, reports like you would from your broker. So you get the uh, uh, checks from the rental checks uh, electronically then? Yes, you get your, you get an ACH transfer. So if you have properties in, let's say, three cities, we consolidate those, you get one check. I see. Uh, and then you also, uh, you start seeing your income and expenses and all your properties. We start giving you some intelligence on these markets saying, you know, this population growth, employment, all the other good stuff. And, uh, you know, on a, on a periodic basis, we'll give you what the value of your portfolio is based on current market comps. Right. So, you know, if you bought a bunch of properties that were, you know, three four $400,000 worth, uh, well, you can actually take a look at your portfolio and say, well, has it gone up, gone down, stayed the same, what's the market right now? So all, all of what we do is, is in that same sort of strain or vein of, being, um, you know, looking at this as a proper investment and not, you know, some mom and pop thing where yes. you buy a house and clean toilets at two in the morning or something like that. <laughs> we have to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this half hour is Don Garguli, Ganguli, who is the CEO of Home Union. Uh, the website to find out more about what he does is homeunion.com. We'll be back after this. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. How do you feel about the future? Tune in each week for Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. You can be a great leader by learning from the inspiring stories of amazing visionaries who are shaping our future. Everyone deserves to create their own vision, and Kate and her guests will share the tools that you need to make it happen. Make a weekly visit to the Voice America Business Channel for Visionary Leader, Extraordinary Life, every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Be inspired. Become inspiring. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is Don Ganguly. Uh, he is the CEO of Home Union, which is a way for people to invest in homes uh, as investors and collect rent. Um, the website for them is homeunion.com. Welcome back to the show, Don. Thanks. So give me an idea of the typical amount that people are investing um, and, and what kind of size portfolios they're building up here. You know, it's uh, it varies really. Uh, you know, people can get started with uh, as little as little as maybe you know twenty five thousand dollars, and that gets them to you know a house that's around a hundred thousand dollars, including closing costs. Uh, and most people start with one or two, uh, so they'll they'll invest twenty five to fifty thousand dollars to get going. If they can qualify for a loan, if they don't, then you know the cash amount for a starter home is. You know, in a place like you know Memphis or Indianapolis or Cleveland, is in the seventy to eighty thousand dollar range. So that's the starters. But if they do qualify, you know, we encourage them to actually qualify because you know the returns are a lot higher and they can leverage it. And then you know, after that, it's really uh, once they see the checks coming in, most folks will you know then go buy multiple properties and 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 deploy you know what they need to deploy. I mean, I think. One of the things you're seeing here uh, in, in the country is you've got a lot of people that are not qualifying for mortgages, and you're seeing really the first-time buyers, you know, shrink because you know these folks don't want to buy; they want to stay mobile, they want to rent, uh, they don't want to take the money in the bank and put it down because they they don't know where the job's going to be and so on and so forth. And you know, the first time in a long time, parents are not telling kids, you know, go buy a house. I mean, it's it's yeah, it's it's, it's, it's it really is. It's, you know, it's fundamentally changed. So, uh, from that perspective, you know what you, what we're seeing is is that same phenomena being played out in this market. I mean, there are folks who have money and who can qualify, and there are others who would prefer to rent and not plunk their money down. And they're good, you know, either young people starting out or they're good working class uh, families that uh, that don't don't really want to buy. And so. Yeah. Uh, our investors tend to be folks that, you know, have that money to put down and can qualify for a loan. And, you know, the interesting thing is there's an argument here that says, you know, if you're going to buy a home and if you if if you want to live some someplace and you have some stability that your, your landlord's not going to kick you out and you do want to invest in real estate, why invest in your own house where you live? Yeah. Why not rent your own house and invest in the best place you need to invest in real estate? Right? Anywhere in the country, yeah. So anywhere in the country, the because, you know, is that the the rental income is more than the mortgage payment, so that their uh, the uh, rent is actually paying the mortgage, and then what you're sending them is the extra cash flow left over. Is that the way it works? That is exactly how it works. Sir. And then, so if you look at countries like Australia, I mean, they actually get this. What they'll do is they'll rent a house and then they'll buy a couple of other houses for uh, investment. And the payments uh, and the cash flow from those houses actually will take care of the uh, the rent on their current house, mm-hmm. and, and and then those houses appreciate or whatever they do at what whatever level, and plus they're getting the monthly cash. See, we end up you know buying our own houses here, and and then hoping that it appreciates so we can keep trading up and up. And in a lot of markets, you know that appreciation has been you know muted or it's a lot of up and down and. Uh, there's sequence risk, right? So when you do want to sell, you don't know if it's up or down at that point in time. And if that's your only, uh, you know, way to monetize that asset, you might have a problem. So mm-hmm. with the cash flow, 
uh, you're getting paid every month, and your downside is, you know, let's say you bought a home for 150 grand, and you've you've earned cash on it for three years. Now you go to sell, and and it's still 150, or it's 160, or maybe 140. You know, these markets don't go up and down that much, but your your overall risk is less because you've been earning for that period in time. So, so the rental real estate you're saying is not as volatile in price as as purchase market is. Depending on where, depending on where you invest, right? I mean, if you invest for speculation, for example, if you invest in the coastal markets, if you go, if you're in California and a lot of markets in California, I mean, you are the rent to price ratios are real low, right? So, uh, so I'll give you an example, right? So in in uh, in Orange County, California, where we live, uh, you know, you could buy a, a seven hundred thousand dollar condo in uh, in Irvine, say, and that'll rent for you know anywhere from twenty five hundred to three thousand dollars, right? And so that's a pretty low rent-to-price ratio. Now, you, you take that same $700,000, and you could actually buy close to six properties or more around the country. Yeah. So rent, rent of at least two to three times that. Look, two and a half times that, right? So, And there's a lot of competition. If you're buying in Orange County, there might be 20 bids for the house or something. Like that. Right, right. Yeah. And the other thing is, if I'm going to invest in, in a, in, at a $700,000 level, now I've got six renters instead of one. I'm diversified in maybe two or three cities. I'm not dependent on any one thing, uh, and I'm just not, you know, I'm not depending just on appreciation that that seven hundred thousand dollar condo is going to go to a million and a half in five years, right? I mean, that's, so is the, the the profile of the investor here really a conservative uh, bond or this is like a bond alternative when you get down to it? Is that the way you're positioning it? That's a, that's definitely one good way. I think we see three segments, right? Um, we see um, younger people that see this as a great alternative to the stock market, and you know, it's sort of a good way to save money over time. By you know, you know, the reality of this is, uh, and I tell my kids this is, if you if you start this early on and you're buying a little rental property here, a little there, a little there, over a period of time, you can begin to see some serious free cash flow, right? Yeah. So a lot of people, some kids that get it, uh, some younger couples that get it earlier. Uh, you know, to start doing this. Um, and then there's the other segment of people that are, you know, doing well in the stock market, but kind of all in on the stock market. And they, they don't know gold or commodities, and they want to diversify. And real estate's actually a pretty, you know, negatively correlated asset to the stock market. So for them, it's like taking, you know, 10 or 20% of their funds out and, and saying, you know, I don't know if the market's going to be up and down. And uh, it's still good now, but what what will it be a year from now? Let me take a little bit and diversify, which is you know. And then you can build a portfolio of homes over time as you get the that's cash flow. Right. You can put it into new homes that's and keep right. leveraging it up that way. But that's right. that's if right. there were another, let's do some negative scenarios. Let's say interest rates went up sharply, or the economy went into recession and the real estate market went down. I mean, not maybe as bad, but just say something like two thousand seven, two thousand eight were to happen again, how would that affect uh, the investors in your uh, properties? You know, it, it, it actually you know does well through most investments through most economic cycles. So let's take that for a second. So if you have a recession, I mean, what what happens then? And you know, the jobs are less, and you know, you've got a bigger proportion of people that actually would want to rent than buy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you have a reduction in household formation. So overall, everything might actually reduce. But new home, you know, new home sales are actually or home sales are actually impacted much more than investment sales because the investors still come in and buy stuff cheap and there are people out to rent. Um, it, you know, if if you have a, um, 
a price dip and you're holding a real estate asset, it doesn't. It's like a bond at that point, right? Unless you you do need to sell it right at that point in time, uh, you're not going to take a hit. You can write it out. Your rent hasn't changed, you know. You, yeah. So your your monthly cash flow hasn't changed. Now, in in rising times, which is the other thing, in, rent is a really good inflation hedge, hedge right? Because um, as 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 prices rise, so does rent. And and on the other hand, property prices will rise, which means your cash on cash might reduce a little bit. So let's say you bought a property that was giving you, uh, for the sake of argument, an eight or nine percent return. Now that might drop to six or seven, but that property is now going to appreciate, right? Yeah. So, so over you time, would give the the investor advice on rents as to whether you think you can raise the rent or not, because the purpose person's not going to know what's if yeah, they're in no, California, they're not going to know what the rents are in Indianapolis or something. Absolutely. So this this is all driven by market comps, right? I mean, so we sort of relentlessly collect data on, on neighborhoods and markets and and comps and what's the latest piece going around and and what what sort of demand do we have and based on that what sort of vacancies are running there and you'll give them advice on what what rents they could charge yeah, yeah and and well we see if we manage the asset for them we they don't do anything really it's like uh, you know, it's like the mutual fund doesn't call everybody and say, hey, I'm going to sell some IBM and, yeah. and buy some. Buy some you, you just do it. it. You just go ahead and do we, it. We just do it, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we have, what we do, what we do have is if there are expenditures, uh, we have levels of approval from investors that says, you know, this is how much we can spend, and if you spend more than this, we're going to call you and seek your approval. So, yes. What kind of fees are involved for somebody dealing with you uh, to, to manage this whole process? You know, we we are, um, you know, we charge sort of an asset management fee in the neighborhood of you know one percent of uh, the property price. I would say r- roughly that's that's where we are at for everything we do. Per so, year, and most, uh, I'm saying per year, right? And yes. so most of the people that that do this are are used to it because, you know, they they pay one one and a half percent to their financial advisors, or they pay that for for their funds. And we do actually a lot more heavy lifting here yes. for everything we do for them. Yeah. Yes. I say, uh-huh. So um, uh, just give me a rough idea of how many properties you have under management at this point and kind of what is your sense of the future as to how much this could grow? Uh, you know, we, we've done, I think, north of $10 million. Uh, I mean, just given that we, you know, sort of launched it very lately in terms of funds committed and, you know, and, and we're progressively putting all of that stuff under management. In terms of the future, I mean, you look at the size of this market, I mean, uh, there is a real thirst of um, for um, yield, right? So, and I, I think you know, if you, if you look at just the number of assets that are out there, if there's fifteen to twenty million of these held for different purposes, I mean, and, and one million transactions a year right now, right? Twenty percent of all transactions are investor transactions. So it's it's a very very large market. I mean, I couldn't even begin to speculate how big it could be. And yeah. Uh, and you know, for us, uh, you know, we want to bring this to the everyday investor because, you know, if you invest in a REIT, for example, you think you're you've got real estate, but you know, the REIT actually goes up and down with the market. If interest right. rates change, yeah. the REIT gets whacked. So, we, we we are we're actually, you know, providing a direct link into real estate, a direct you know direct non correlation to the market from that perspective. Very good. In about a minute or so we have left, just kind of do a, a quick summary of why people should be dealing with Home Union if they wanted to get into real estate investing. Uh, you know, there's really nothing else like us uh, in the market, and we've, we're so ahead in terms of, you know, the processes, the technology, and the data we collect. Uh, you know, our whole 
you know, tagline, which is exactly what we do, which is you invest, we do the rest. So if you are somebody, if people are looking for diversification from the market, if you're somebody that's looking for yield, if you're somebody that's a, you know, a passive investor and what, you know, Benjamin Graham calls the value investor, which means, you know, you, you may not need to hit a huge home run and be like a hedge fund and get 25, 30% returns, but you really want your downside protected. Uh, this is a great opportunity because, you know, uh, you're not going to have an Enron or a WorldCom at the other end of it. Right. If you're buying the right place and you're buying the right kind of property, I mean, your returns may will go up and down. Nothing's risk-free. You'll, you know, you'll have vacancies. You'll have repairs. You might have property prices that change up and down. But if you're in it for, you know, five to seven years, um, you know, you are going to see a pretty steady average return that's, uh, you know, a lot good. better than money market funds or CDs these days, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, Thank you so much. Well, very good. My guest this half hour has been Don Ganguly. Uh, he, he is the CEO of Home Union. Uh, you can see he helps people buy individual homes as, as investments. Uh, you can find out more about it at his website, which is homeunion.com. Thanks so much for being a guest on the website, Money Answer Show, Don. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you, and we'll be back with the next guest uh, in the next uh, segment. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. What do business and sports have in common? Both are based on competition, and the goal of each is the same, to win. If you're in business, you need an edge over your competitors. You need to innovate and improve. You need to make adjustments to stay ahead of your competition. Tune in to The Business Locker Room with Kelly Riggs. Get the playbook and the coaching you need to improve your business performance. The Business Locker Room airs live every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. What does conscious leadership mean to you? It unites organizations instead of dividing them. By exploring commonly-based business challenges, it guarantees an increase in your bottom line. Tune in to Minding Our Business, Creating a Spiritual Economy, with your host, Nadine Rogers. Each week, we'll hear from business leaders and learn from their strategies. We'll talk about personal and organizational best practices that you can learn from, and we'll hear from you. Minding Our Business airs live Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is Dan Huber. Uh, he is the uh, author of The Huber Report, which is in the uh, explaining what's going on in the commodities market. Welcome to The Money Answer Show, Dan. Thank you very much for having me today. Just give us a little bit of background of what you've done before you created the Huber Report. 
Very good. My uh, my background really, I guess, almost goes to childhood. I uh, grew up in a family grain and feed operation. We've always been very active in the agricultural industry, and of course, even before that, my my father and mother's families both have uh, strong, deep roots in the agricultural section here in the Illinois. And uh, I, I personally had entered the commodity field that always had an interest in grain markets and trading, and uh, most specifically hedging. Uh, you know, from from early early out of my years, and uh, had entered the actual commodity business as a broker in 1979, and uh, soon thereafter, I actually started my own advisory firm and worked with a partner for many many years, uh, providing brokerage services, advisory work primarily for farmers and grain elevators, and uh, joined forces then in. Uh, 2002 with uh, Diversified Services, which is a a provider of crop insurance across the United States. Actually, one of the uh, one of the top five providers there. We were also connected with Consolidated Grain Barge, which is one of the uh, one of the larger grain companies worldwide right now. Actually, does quite a bit of business in the Far East, and uh, you know, it's a, a business I've always thoroughly enjoyed. I've always uh, really uh, uh, really had an interest in not only working with markets, but uh, you know, you, you know, of course, everything. Everything in commodities impacts all of us, and impacts us each and every day in the in what we pay for food prices and the trends there. And gosh, on a worldwide basis, I mean, you don't have to go back too many years here, and uh, you know, with food rights around the world, as prices escalated and, and supplies were supplies were uh, less than plentiful in many areas. So, you know, many many wars, many revolutions have been triggered over food. So, it's a I've always felt it's you know, one of the places to be because it's absolutely one of the essential things we need for life. So, let's talk about investing in, in uh, agriculture. Uh, for the average individual who's not sophisticated, who's not going to be following the markets day to day, are there some ways uh, to benefit from the, the current, basically, we have a rising food price situation? Oh, yes. You know, and, and again, keeping consideration the rising food price situation we have right now is really very much related to uh, drought conditions in several parts of the country, particularly California, over the last three years, and, you know, and less than ideal hay pasture conditions in some of the western states as well. And additionally, in the last uh, year now, boy, there has been a, a disease problem within the hog industry, and, and which has created some some uh, abnormally high mortality rates. I mean, we probably lost somewhere, I think they're, they're estimating somewhere around 8 million head of hogs this year, which would have come to market that uh, have really explained why we've had the higher food prices. You know, this is probably, in the greater scheme of things, is somewhat of a... Uh, uh, somewhat of a short-term cyclical type of thing. We're, we're, when I say short-term, a year, two years, I mean, it's not one of these long-term events that's really going to keep us higher. The commodities really did become an, in a, uh, a favorite investment, though, really, over, starting you know back in 2000. And I think for, for a number of reasons. One, you know, we, we did see the general commodity sector begin to uh, to strengthen. And, of course, when we say commodities, I mean, that goes all the way over to crude oil and gold and silver and things of this nature. Uh, aluminum, I guess you'd say. And you know, people recognize that commodities tend to be non-correlative to uh, the equity markets. So, uh, there, I mean, a lot of studies were run optimizing what would what would a, uh, an overall portfolio how would it perform? You know, good years, bad years, and what you found is a lot of money managers then began to move into commodity funds or, or diversify part of their portfolio into commodity funds. Most often, 10 to 15 percent of a total portfolio would then move into commodities, and what that tended to do, you know, particularly, or gosh, I remember very, very distinctly back in 2000, uh, you know, when the uh, after the tech bubble, 
the uh, you know those who had divested uh, you know ten to fifteen percent of their portfolio in commodities really took uh, you know a lot of that hit out of what happened in that two thousand two thousand two period, and uh, you know even even in two thousand eight. The, uh, you know, not that everything didn't suffer when we, uh, we entered the recession there, but commodities actually turned out of it pretty quickly and, uh, turned into new highs into the year 2012. It wasn't that every commodity went up. So, so again, having that, that, uh, Balance, uh, where not everything is either in in equities or bonds. Um, it's a real alternative to stocks and bonds. You're saying, yeah. So absolutely. Again, for people absolutely. who are not trading futures, do you like uh, the exchange traded funds as a way to play pure commodities? For for the small individual who wants to do them to do it himself, yes. I mean, I think that that's probably the ideal way to do it. I mean, the uh, with an exchange traded fund, you can break it down to any number of different sectors of the commodity themselves, or take a more of a general uh, general type of investment. Commodities, uh, but you know you're not worried on the on the margins, and, and of course when you actually deal in futures contracts, you have contracts that expire on certain months. Where you're into an exchange traded fund, you're not dealing with that. So I think for the uh, the average investor, if you're if you're not out turning it over to an actual money manager, then I think the exchange traded fund is probably so the most effective. So what, what would be, be some there. of your favorite uh, ETFs in the commodities in the agricultural market? Uh, you know, well, again, I guess I. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm totally qualified to say that. I know Deutsche Bank uh, had several ETFs that were uh, very much uh, broken down by commodities. A corn, e- a grain ETF, which was corn and wheat. They had one that was more more generic between corn, soybeans, and wheat. Uh, they, uh, you know, you could you could break it down by the different commodity groups, and they they were some of the more flexible ones out there. But uh, yeah, you know, again, there's just about every uh, ETF company did have you know a, a different mixture in there. So it's you know myself, you know, was looking. At the uh, and again dealing primarily with the agricultures, you know I would probably tend to want to be shifting money, you know, back and forth between, you know, what what commodity looks to be have the most potential to the upside right now. But it's but 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 that said, you know, most people don't want to look at anything quite that uh, maybe maybe actively trading. Yeah. So it's uh, so you know in the long run, I know as you say, in the short term we've had drought situations, so on, but mm-hmm. in the long term, uh, people make the argument that food prices are going to go up because of increased demand. Uh, particularly from Asia, as these uh, mm-hmm. economies get stronger and people eat better and so on. Are you a believer in that the long-term argument that the food prices will go up? Because you know, I, 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 I guess I want to define long-term when I say that. I'll, I'll, I'll make it an unequivocal yes. I, I do think that uh, uh, as world incomes continue to rise, there's you know absolutely we're we're going to see a situation where food prices are going to have to rise along with it. You know, particularly as incomes rise, people tend to want to have a little better or what we would consider a West more Western diet. You know, where there's more meat consumed, which means more demand for grains. That said, the I think over the next, the short term when I, when I start short term, I want to say ten to you know five to ten years uh, to the extreme of twenty years, we're probably into more of a period of uh, relatively uh, flat growth in the in the egg sector, especially. But that's going to translate into kind of the general commodity side. And if you look back historically, you know, usually about every thirty years, we tend to get a very big inflationary push in commodities, and then we'll level off. We have to kind of readjust. 
And you know, when you go to the ag sector, of course, one of the main main drivers that we had seen uh, from 2000, let's say, to 2012, was phenomenal growth in the ethanol industry. Uh, that, that really put a lot of competition out there on the, for the grains that were being produced, and we know how we allotted that to acreage, and that's that's leveled off. I mean, the uh, the ethanol slow down. They've, they've like. reduced the, the uh, subsidies for ethanol. Well, a lot, you know, right? it, yeah, you know, and actually, it, yeah, I think it, beyond the subsidies, you're not seeing any changes. There were there were mandates on how much needed to be blended, and there was you know a lot of discussion that that was going to continue to be ratcheted higher. Well, it hasn't been. They've they have uh, basically leveled that off, which you know, that in of itself uh, stopped really a lot of that expansion in there. So it's, uh, you know, with, without that growth engine driving commodities up, I think we've got a period of readjustment. And more specifically, what really happened was, uh, it, you know, and again, we can go back to the early 1970s and have seen the same kind of scenario, you know, when that, well, it's it just economics at work. When you push to higher prices, you're going to stimulate the investment in um, different parts of the world. If we go back into the early 1970s, what you witnessed was China and Japan, uh, a few other countries really heavily invested in South America at that point. And gosh, in 1970, 71, you know, Brazil wasn't even on the map as far as a, uh, a major agricultural producer. Well, here today, Brazil produces more soybeans than we do in North America. Yeah. What we're seeing now is... Uh, now, it's still, still investment down there. I mean, there's still things to be done there, but the the dollars really seem to be flowing to Africa. And, uh, you know, they have uh, what appears to be uh, just tremendous opportunities for growth of land that has is not being used. And uh, I think I read here a week or so ago that uh, the uh, UN World Bank believes that in 2014, there's going to be around $80 billion, which will, set, again, set another new record, $80 billion uh, invested in uh, in Africa from various countries. Majority of that is in, uh, for lack of a better word, farming uh, resources, natural resources. I mean, of course, that could be gold. I mean, that could be minerals. There's a lot of a lot of the reasons that people are investing, but they all they all do come back to commodities. So but, that's going to add increase to, to supply, world supply significantly. Correct, correct. You know, so I, I think you've got this this balancing period here where we're actually going to step up world production, and yeah, even in you know, for example, the old Soviet Union. I mean, there's a, a, not that Ukraine hasn't had its issues this year, but a lot of investment happening there to try to bring agriculture back. Now we know there's a finite amount of ground. I mean, you you can't manufacture new ground, and, and it takes a while to develop all this, particularly the infrastructure. But you know, there, that's why I think if we look over the next five to ten year period, uh, and again, to at, at the most twenty years, you know, we're probably more of a rebuilding phase where where the commodities are not going to be quite as inflationary. Sure, they'll be they'll be up and down years, and they'll be brief periods like we have right now with the cattle and the hog industry. But it's not going to be that uh, that big inflationary push as we witness from, let's say, 2000 to 2010. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this, hour, this half hour is Dan Huber. Uh, he is an expert in commodities and the commodities market. Uh, he puts out The Huber Report, uh, and that is the website for it, thehuberreport.com. We'll be back after this.
whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is Dan Huber. Uh, he is the publisher of the Huber Report, which is an ex- a, a newsletter about the commodities market. Welcome back, Dan. Thank you very much. Let's go through some of the individual commodities that you're following. Just give us a sense of what's happening. Let's start with the grains, and maybe let's start with corn. Kind of give us a sense of what's happening there. Certainly, certainly. The uh, the corn market has uh, you, you know recently, and I'm going to say recently, the last month and a half now has actually been uh, working back lower again. We did have a, a slight rally from January one up through the first of May, and has since been uh, been pulling back down. We're about the same levels we were back in February. And, and the corn is a very much in a rebuilding phase. We the demand uh, actually stepped up considerably this year as compared to what was anticipated. If we went back to January one. There was a lot of people that really thought with uh, where the demand was, with the production levels we saw last year, we would probably rebuild our ending stocks or you know the, the stocks we would carry over into the new crop year up towards the two billion bushel area, which is more than ample. Uh, you know, for example, a year ago we had uh, far less than half of that, maybe around eight hundred million bushels. But uh, the, the demand really kicked in. I mean, part of it was domestic. Part coming from the ethanol side was a little better than anticipated, uh, but more so it was it was export demand. We our exports are uh, significantly higher than they were a year ago. Significantly higher than we thought in December or December January. In fact, we right now it looks like we'll export about 1.9 billion bushels of corn this year right. compared to around 700 million last year. So you know the worldwide demand has picked up pretty dramatically. Now, that said, you know, the the crop is in the ground. It looks like it's getting off to a great start. Um, granted, the the risk is still ahead. I mean, July, June, July is the real critical period for growing conditions. But boy, if we get there through there unscathed or with, with nice weather conditions, it's probably going to say the corn market's going to be more in a defensive posture through the balance of the year. And how about wheat? What's happening with wheat? You know, wheat uh, is similar in the respect that the, the demand this year has been a little bit better than was anticipated, you know, three, even three and four months ago. Domestically, we've had a few issues uh, with the production, particularly down in the Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas area. Very dry here a month ago. 
at a cr- uh, cr- critical growing stage as it came out of the winter dormancy. Uh, our, our crop is going to be okay. Um, our supplies are going to be about unchanged from a year ago. But what you see worldwide, though, and of course, I mean, all of these commodities are, are world traded, but especially wheat. Uh, European crops look phenomenal. The Russian crop looks great. The Ukrainian crop looks looks good. I mean, better than it was, let's say, two years ago. Uh, granted, we have, uh, you know, there, there will ultimately be the Australian crop down down the road. But what, what we find is a you know, relatively tight domestic situation, but abundant supplies worldwide. So, uh, so without. Uh, as it stands here right now, of course, wheat harvest is uh, will start here within within the next thirty days with no issues there. You know, here too, I think the the wheat market is probably probably seen a lot of its uh, better side upside action here too. It's broken, uh, you know, after a nice first quarter rally, we have broken back down to levels that we were at in January, February, and unless there is again some kind of a world issue that shapes up and that doesn't seem to be on the on the horizon right now, weather forecast everywhere. You look pretty solid. It uh, looks like we've probably kind of popped the uh, burst the bubble there as well. And then the next complex of soybean, both soybean meal, oil, and regular soybeans. What's the outlook there? Absolutely. The, uh, now there's where the excitement has been this year, and the uh, the soybeans. The we'll have some better answers at the end of June when we get some of the stocks numbers that come out, uh, but soybeans. You know, and part of it has to. We have to go back to what happened a year ago. A year ago, uh, China really moved themselves uh, into, and not necessarily their own fault, became in a very critical situation. They they had booked a lot of beans out of South America, and that's one thing about the soybean worldwide soybean production. We're we're different hemispheres, so when we're producing a crop, South America is not, and vice versa. But what had happened is, you know, we we'd had a substandard crop a year ago, but South America looked like they were putting on a great uh, crop, but they have just tremendous amount of infrastructure problems, particularly at their ports. And the the Chinese uh, really were caught behind the eight ball, could not get product out when they needed it. Uh, all, ultimately, had to divert a lot of business back to the United States to uh, to pick up beans, which of course increased the usage that uh, we weren't anticipating. But we we had the product, but it still took us down to some very tight supplies. So we only had about a four to five week supply, which which we would consider a pipeline supply in soybeans. Kind of thought we were getting through that. And uh, this year, you know, they, the, the Chinese kind of went full circle. Instead of, instead of depending on, you know, are we going to get beans out of South America, they overbooked and uh, probably uh, booked far more beans than they needed. They've been back in the world market selling beans back in. But domestically, we have what almost looks like an impossible situation in that if you right now we have already sold uh, over 50 million more beans than we uh, we think should have been you know that, that was projected to be sold and the only way we're counterbalancing that is we're importing beans in fact the the government currently estimates we will import 90 million bushels of beans and still only end up with uh, around 120 or 130 million bushels so it's it is a, uh, a very volatile market situation we, yep. we have a short amount of time let's just go to some of the other ones uh, hogs you'd mentioned uh, a lot of hogs have gotten these diseases what, what is going on in the hog market now. Sure, sure. Yeah, and, and absolutely, I mean, the hog market is uh, 
is hogs and hogs and cattle both you know have been you know stellar performers this year. The the hogs look like they have kind of settled down. And, and what what you found is, uh, you, I think I mentioned earlier this um, this disease that has uh, come from, uh, and nobody really knows where it came from. We know it came from somewhere outside of this country. Uh, probably came in through some some breeding stock somewhere and uh, has probably knocked out eight, nine, ten percent of the uh, the overall overall size of what would have been the slaughter this year. Uh, but, but regardless, I mean, it's the it, we've we've pushed up into higher prices. We were seeing the counter effect of that now. Uh, one is the, uh, the the hog industries itself has tended now because they have less numbers because they're seeing the higher price. What they do is they tend to feed the the animals to a heavier weight. So even though you have less animals coming to market, they're at a heavier weight. So the tonnage has not been as affected as bad as one might suspect with the lower numbers. But the other thing that we are now have been seeing for the last several months in particular is that the amount, the number of gilts, which are, uh, what, you know, which would ultimately become the sows that we produce the offspring, has been is a lower percentage in the slaughter. So the farmers or the, 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 the hog industry is actually holding, holding those animals back with an effort to uh, rebuild the herd. Now, just recently, there's been kind of a second scare. Maybe this, this disease, this PED uh, virus that's out there tends to have only flared up in when it's cooler and wetter. So as you were into the summer months, it's uh, we, we thought we were kind of beyond the threat. But as it turned out, there's this kind of a second strain that's shown up now. So still some issues, but yeah, I, I guess as a whole, I think we're probably probably toward the peak. You know, not not only because we see the, the heavier weights, um, but you know the consumers backing away. I mean, they're they're paying fifteen percent of the affecting you know, demand here yeah. a year ago. And, yeah, is the same away. true for cattle as well? For cattle, yeah, different uh, different reasonings. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the problems in the cattle have stemmed from the droughts to the western states. And uh, you know, the if you look at total cattle, the cow herd, you know, where where we're producing the uh, the offspring to uh, to uh, raise for uh, the feed market, uh, we're at the lowest numbers we've been since 1951. And, wow. you know, it's been unprofitable years. It has been the droughts, you know, and not having the pasture to be able to feed them. Uh, which also translates into dairy. I mean, California California produces, I think, around 21% of the milk for this country. And, uh, you know, they've just been year after year of drought and uh, unprofitability on top of it. And so the numbers are down. So, And particularly in the cattle, you know, gosh, even even if you start rebuilding the herds, which which we are seeing. I mean, we are seeing that uh, yeah. that there is less heifers coming to market, meaning that they're, they're going to try to start rebuilding the herds. But, you know, you're talking about something that's going to take one to two years. So it's very really, really good. It's, it's, well, thanks so much. Fit. My guest this half hour has been Dan Huber. Uh, he is the publisher of the Huber Report, which is H U E B E R Report. You can see he's very knowledgeable about what's going on in the commodities market, which is such a key market for all kinds of investors and the food you eat all the time. So, thanks so much for being a guest on the Money Answer Show, Dan. My pleasure to be here. Thanks very much. And thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.